0: Can we spend Sitting an entire the podcast going through Hunting Douche and <laughs> think just naming just... the people that we know who are like that? No, that could be really dangerous. Uh, it could be amazing. We'd have no friends left. Okay? <clears throat> other than each other and whoever runs Hunting Douche. I want to find out who <laughs> runs Hunting Douche. I think it'd be really interesting. I think the amazing thing about it is... like. I don't know. Are we actually are we going to start the podcast talking about hunting? I douche? mean,
1: I am recording,
0: so we, yeah, could, well. we, could, we
1: could start with I this. I think it's fascinating. I think you go like. Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Byron Pace. It is the 20th of January, 2022. We release these shows every two weeks, alternating between the Living with Nature series and the longer form conversations like we're going to have on this episode with a host of different people from all around the globe. In this show, I sit down with friend and dear manager, Sam Thompson, who has graced us with his voice and presence on more than one occasion already over the last five, six years. As always with Sam, this is equal parts entertainment and informational. This podcast is produced in partnership with the publication Modern Huntsman, which is released biannually. Our latest volume is dedicated to the conservation efforts on the continent of Africa, tackling stories from elephant hunting in Botswana to anti-poaching efforts in Mozambique. You can get your copy now on modernhuntsman.com and if you're a Patreon supporter, you also get 15% off. So head over to patreon.com forward slash Byron Pace and that is a perfect segue into thanking the top tier patrons this month who include Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman of RD Contracting.co.uk, James Marchington, the guys at South Esher Stalking. Thomas Cameron, Mark Sbroski, and Colin Knight. Please welcome Sam Thompson
0: back to the show. So I was having this chat with someone relatively recently about like about six years ago. I was involved. I did some guiding on an event which was like quite product heavy. And there was all journalists and different people and bits and bobs there. And that was in 2015. So when's that? Seven years ago?
1: Oh, yeah. We're in 2022. Yeah, we
0: <laughs> are. So yeah, seven years ago, and seven years ago, the idea that there would be enough of a social media, Instagram hunting world thing, that there would be pages on Instagram taking the piss out of pages on Instagram, <laughs> entirely <laughs> about hunting, and those people would have millions of followers, would just be completely unheard of. Then everybody was excited because like Jagd and Hund magazine were there, yeah, and like you uh,
1: as <laughs> as old and kind of archaic in the best kind of way, I guess um as you can get i mean very down the line stalwart of
0: uh, the german publishing world well yeah and it's the same i don't know i think it's really interesting i wonder if print and this is probably a bad thing to say to a man who's involved in the magazine isn't it i wonder where the print like the print journalism i remember someone saying to me years ago that um uh what was it print media's dead and i read that on the internet i remember that <laughs> yeah <laughs> a great line um i think the hunting world is just a fascinating place for it because you've there isn't those there isn't those writers now and i speak as someone that's done a little bit of writing in our little world there isn't those writers now that there was when i was uh, and you know you were pretty similar age those guys like the giles catchpoles and John Humphreys, who used to write for The Shooting oh, Times. yes. And probably like the the American equivalent of that. It's your Jack uh, O'Connor's. Yeah, your Jack, yeah, exactly. Those people who are like not necessarily, well, they weren't professionals. Um, you know, there's, uh, what was his name? Was it, uh, it wasn't Giles Catchpole, but like one of the teachers at Sedba School, he wrote in The Shooting Times, he wrote books. Um, our friend Jago Miller's dad, who wrote books about ducks and things, and, mm. and really like is slash was an authority on that. And he, those people had such a knowledge or maybe knew that they didn't have such a knowledge, so wrote in this very lovely way. And I think that's really changed. Um, I think like the 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 people, however you get into magazine writing now, like I say, in the, like in the shooting-y world and the whatever it is, however that is must have changed so much because of social media and the presence and the this and the that and the other. And I think it, the the quality of the content has generally suffered. There's Definitely. exceptions, yeah. and I think like, and you and I, you and I are a prime example of like. There's now I think there's now more of a place of, for like a philosophical conversation, um, about things. I think that's probably that happens more. Maybe but I think but that's then also, it probably that's doesn't almost, in the al- mainstream,
1: but that's also kind of going back to how it works. That's kind yeah, of going really back to ago. some of that old school. Uh, writing and, and thought process and being more of a more of a naturalist or, or a naturalist first and a hunter second and and i think we're seeing an evolution of that now that was definitely lost and i think and i can't i've had this discussion with one or two people before i think that some of the reason that that was lost was the the increased commercialization of it particularly through video and i think a lot of that was driven out of the u.s with the hunting channels and it just became this massive churn machine. It became about eyeballs on, it became about high-fiving, it became about killing shit. Yeah And I think a, 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 and as a youngster, if that's the world that you get funneled into and you think and you trying, you're trying to find these figures to look up to, and that's what you have to look up to rather than an Aldo
0: Leopold. Or an Eric Begbie. Mm-hmm. Yes to be more languish about it. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally get that. Then
1: then you're going to aspire to that and it t- I think it then takes a little bit of time so you know, it is about more than that. Yeah. Um uh, It is yeah. an interesting one, but you, you know the it's interesting. I know a few people, uh, friends of mine <clears throat> who are involved in the the kind of media management and a media event organization in the hunting space. So creating events for brands, essentially to create content for product because they have shit that they want to sell. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of them have realized in the last like five years or so that some of the people that they've pulled into these events, because they've seen them on social, they have a presence there and they're watching the videos that they make and the pictures that they take. And they pull these, in inverted commas, journalists, like new media journalists to these events to then talk about these products. And the difference between what is shown to the world and the reality and the substance of the people and what they've done. Yeah. Sometimes you're pleasantly surprised, but more often than not, from the people I know who organize these things, it's, there's a, a massive chasm of yeah. experience there, which those people who used to write in, in the, the sort of you know, back 50s, 60s, 70s. It was built on the foundation of knowledge rather than built on a foundation of how many people are watching my Instagram account.
0: Very much so. I think there's two, it reminds me of a conversation I had with Tom Payne, the pigeon shooter. Oh yes, uh, I was speaking uh, to his, his a very long time ago. Lovely partner, though, yeah, it? yeah. And I think, and I'm trying to remember the term, but I remember Tom telling me about being at an event, and there was a guy there, and everybody, you know, there was a few people having a wee chat and a dram or whatever at this thing, and they would like.
1: If it was Tom, it was probably ten his tenth dram.
0: Yeah, <laughs> probably. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, they were chatting at this like, like you say, this kind of like media event, whatever you want to call it. And uh, someone said to Tom, Oh, what do you do? And he's like, Oh, I'm Tom Payne. And well, he's Tom Payne. So he said, <laughs> That's all he needs to say. I love shooting pigeons. And we'll talk about it for many days. Um, but, like, you know, he's like, Oh, I'm Tom Payne. And I wrote for the Shooting Times. And I wrote a book about pigeon shooting. And what do you do? And the guy replied, like, I can't. I'd love the. Like, it was the most painful term, um, <laughs> which I've like, since used at length. Um, I'd like to say with a great deal of sarcasm. But it was like, um, it wasn't influential. It was something wonderful. Um, but I, yeah, it was basically like, oh, I'm a big deal on Instagram. I'd love to remember the term because it was so utterly, hilariously painful.
1: That would have um, appeared
0: on Hunting Douche. It would have been. But the, the, so interestingly, the interesting thing, and the second point about this, like exactly what you're saying, um, you know, all those. B- blonde women that are sponsored by Browning. Do you remember like five years ago, if you were blonde, wore leggings and occasionally shot things, you were sponsored they by Browning. And it did a massive disservice to women in the
1: Yeah, industry, well, like. I think so. But also like... <laughs> and that comes from a lot of women who yeah. are friends of mine who were commenting on it exactly. But it wasn't... I mean, yeah. we're, we're talking about it now. Most people probably
0: have forgotten about that. Yeah, but, but it was a time, genuine time, I remember fate. it being brought up. Yeah, And I think there was, that, there was that period like when I... And I think I probably got on Instagram relatively late. Um, but there was there was not the weight of uh, people on it in our little world. So there wasn't the huge amount of people that you could now follow. So you pretty much, like, I remember being like, oh, well, they shoot stuff, and like I'll follow them. So you follow them for a bit, and then you I just got incredibly, and I still do occasionally, you know, you'll see somebody in the home page, the feed thing, and you're like, well, who are you? Why do I follow you? And you go onto their page, <laughs> and all of the pictures on their Instagram are pictures of them. Yeah, in like a different bit of wood or wearing a different jacket with a rifle. And I'm now just like, man, I'm not going to follow.
1: Unfollow. You.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I've just, done that a few times. Like, it's now, just, it, I don't know. There's there's nothing being added. And I think the interesting thing with you saying about, you know, the sort of the way there's now a philosoph- philosophical chat about... He hasn't even had a beer yet. Yeah, um, <laughs> there's now a philosophical chat about this that probably wasn't acceptable 10 years, or not wasn't acceptable, it wasn't happening 10 years ago. If you read some of the really old books, like I remember reading a book uh, that was written a, a great deal of time ago about grouse shooting. And there was a whole chapter in this book about grouse shooting, which focused very much on shooting them over pointers and setters in the very traditional way. love it. There was a whole chapter in this book, mm. slagging off driven grouse shooting. Oh, seriously? Yep, That's and weird. what a terrible, like it was a new invention. It was terrible, it was lazy. Um, it wasn't the right way of doing it. You didn't get the most out of it. and it like just went to town on this. And there was a real like that was a real thing that you know w- happened. And uh, you, we've talked before. I don't know if we've ever talked on this, but you know, Richard, William Scrope, uh, the stalking author. Um, he, you know, th- th- there's there's passages in his books and Augustus Grimble's books. those very early stalking books about how it's really unsporting to have a guide. And how lazy you would be if someone did it for you, which I can't really comment on now. Um, <laughs> that's that's what keeps me in. That's what uh, you do. Keeps me in a job, but um, you know that. Uh, and and I think the interesting thing is that at that point in the sport, it was so young, and people were so. Uh, it was so important to them that it 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 remained a, um, a, an honest and sort of, uh, morally just thing for them to be doing perhaps is the way to i don't know i wasn't there it's hard to say isn't it um but i think it's important you know it was important though clearly from what they've written and the length that they put into these passages trying to dissuade people from joining into what they thought was damaging to that sport that they were passionate about you know don't shoot driven grouse because it won't last and it's bad for the image and it's very greedy don't do that use pointers use setters like now ironically probably were right well, we're still having the same chat. We've come full circle, and now we're yeah. saying the same stuff. But it, I, I, think- I
1: wonder. I wonder. I mean, if if that had be, if driven grouse shooting had never existed, and it had just been a, a slight evolution or an incre- an increased amount of um, space taken up by driven driven grouse shooting with pointers, whether it would even be a debate today. Because grouse shooting is kind of the pinnacle in the UK of the shooting and society controversy. Yeah, yeah. I Probably not.
0: Possibly, it not. might
1: not even be discussed.
0: Don't know, but equally, maybe we wouldn't be shooting grouse at all because there wasn't the money to maintain grouse over you you, you, you. Very true. Hard to say, Byron. God, we've gone right in at the deep end. We <laughs> <laughs> I have to say
1: that my. Having, I've never shot driven grouse, but I have been on many a driven grouse day, um, either loading or taking photos or filming or whatever. Um, So I've been fortunate enough to stand in the butts and see what a spectacle it is. Uh, If I had to pick, it would be shooting grouse over pointers.
0: Yeah. I really,
1: really enjoy that there is something really beautiful and sociable about it too. Especially if you're with a few people 100%. and your one person goes ahead, you, you get, you get into a covey, you either shoot a bird or you miss a bird. And then it's the next person's opportunity. Yeah. And the the couple of people who you're shooting with are lagging back a bit and you're having a social chat think, and it's very relaxed and assuming it's not pissing down with rain, which yeah. occasionally it is at that time of year. Think, it's a just
0: a really, a truly wonderful day. Yeah, Well, and I would completely agree with that. I love it. I love a day at pointers. Um, and everything you said is entirely right. That's why it's so much fun because it is so sociable and everybody can enjoy everybody's shooting and everybody's exactly, missing. Right. That's really yeah. lovely. Um, and then I would quickly follow it by saying, what I don't particularly like, mm. and I've never really got, I don't know. Um, shooting shooting walked up grouse in lines over spaniels i don't think
1: i don't really enjoy that
0: no it's very hard to do i've done
1: that and it's it's very hard
0: work it's very hard work and i think it's because you're in that sort of scenario where suddenly there's kind of like a team that can be let down i think that puts quite a lot of pressure on people shooting because they don't want to be lagging back they don't want to fall behind and you know there's all of that all you know He's shooting quite a lot, or did he poach that? But whatever. There's not that kind of I don't know. I think if you're going out to shoot ten brace shooting ten brace over pointers between five people, two people, ten people, whatever, um, I think that's a really nice way that everybody kind of gets an amount of shooting that's pretty equal. And there's a really like you say, the gang of folk walking behind the people shooting and behind the person working the dog. Um that they have every bit as nice a time all the time whereas i think any driven shooting if you're not in the shooting you know if if you're at an end of a line or whatever and you're not and obviously you know you cycle through and it works so that people do get shooting and all these different bits and bobs but um yeah i i i would I would agree with you completely um
1: i i think one of the things for me is that um you are because you're because you're pretty much Behind the person whose opportunity it is to go and walk up to the pointer that's pointing on the grouse, you're kind of invested in it with the person. Yeah, it's with exciting, the gun. isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and whether it's you pulling the trigger, or this is how I view it anyway, whether it's you pulling the trigger or you're watching the person make that kind of final stalk in with the dog, and then the dog going forward and making the flush, it almost
0: doesn't matter. Yeah, and I think like so much of show, mu- <laughs> show much. Sean Connery's here. <laughs> so much of virtually all... And I'm not a big... Like what the Americans would call bird hunting. I'm not a particularly knowledgeable or good or experienced person when it comes to that. And um, it's not my favorite thing to do. But the bit of it I like, I like the dog work. I like the hunting aspect of it. And I think anything with pointers or setters or or any sort of dog like that, it's a very... It's a really exciting thing to watch. It's a very interesting thing to watch. You know, I've been to Pointer and Setter field trials. And, you know, that, you know, just watching different dogs run and how they run and how people handle them is interesting. And I think you then combine that with a little bit of shooting, which it generally is a little bit of shooting, and a bag at the end of the day, which can generally be eaten by all the people that are there. That's quite good. Um, And the ability to... You know, make something of not having an awful lot of grass, but having enough grass to do that. It means it's something that you can do in a lot of situations, and is relatively affordable for people, and and generally quite good. I'm having um, having some deja vu
1: here. I'm remembering that I think the last time we talked, we talked about, and we're not going to talk about this today. Because we've we've beaten this to death with a stick, um, we talked about big bag days, probably. and I think then we got phone calls from the various organisations or representatives mm. from various organisations in the weeks that followed about
0: our discussion. I think we probably slagged some people off as well, like I we tend to do, which is never a good idea. I is think
1: it? no, that might have actually not been well, I the say last. It's never discussion. a good idea.
0: It can be good fun, <laughs> but, um,
1: it wasn't the last discussion. It not was put the that time before the table that. For the last today. time you and I uh, had a podcast, it was again the start of the year. Um, now, I think you've done three starts of years, uh, and I was at your uh, your other place, which is in Inverness.
0: Yeah, Jemima's Flat. Jemima's
1: Flat, which and is, we drank what? a small barrel of beer,
0: and we were yeah, quite it drunk. Lady, that was, was great, it. wasn't it? That is <laughs> not mean, happening people, today. I literally have... only
1: have one can in my hand, and Sam has one can, <laughs> and we've had a very civilized meal but we are a a very shot.
0: we are a very short walk away from quite a lot of wisdom, <laughs> anything could happen um what i really enjoy about that is there is quite a few people that have booked hunting with me since and have come stalking <laughs> on what basis and are like oh he well, we kind of came because you're that guy that got pissed on a podcast and i was like oh yeah i, I was like oh no um no, that was good fun, but that was a long time ago. That was pre-COVID and things. And then there's probably been a few times since we've said, oh, we should probably do a podcast," and we haven't. And so we haven't.
1: You, you live so far it's away, Sam.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I do. And it's, it's um, yeah, and you're, and you're never anywhere. Well, I mean,
1: that is, that is that is also a rather large component of why we haven't. I mean, I've seen you quite a lot recently in the last couple of months. Yeah, it's been months. lovely. Uh, but I haven't seen you very much in the last two years. No, because not at all. COVID, and I haven't been home. Very and much.
0: travel, yes. <laughs> international superstar Byron Pace.
1: Well, I mean, international traveler for sure, because that's how I eat. <laughs> 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 About superstar. Yeah.
0: No, I think it's um, uh, it's 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 nice to be back. That's the term. It's good to have a headset on. Feel like a pilot.
1: It's nice to, for me to be back at home for a bit, as in back at Scotland. When I came up. Um, to see you.
0: It was pre- at Stags, wasn't it? Oh shit! Yeah, it was. Yeah, it's like it the was back like, end of stags. It was. It was I October. Think it wasn't the changeover week. It would have been the second to last week. Of stags. Probably. Yeah. You um,
1: I had two that. really, or a couple, a handful of really nice days on. The, we weren't even shooting, or I, I wasn't oh. shooting. We you had um, clients here, and I was just embracing being on the hill with oh. stags and people also enjoying their day, and it reminded me how good it is to be out on the hills in Scotland, because it's so easy to take it for granted when it's literally at the back of my house. I like walk out my back door and the hills are there. Um, And I've done a lot of it over the years, but I've also been away a lot recently. But there is something very grounding and something truly magical, and it's good for me to remember that I have that on my doorstep. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to come out in October. No, it
0: was lovely and it was a nice we had a fantastic rut this year. It was it was long which is lovely. Um very lucky that we had good stags holding hinds and I think when you've got that when you've got that spectacle in front of you that you don't need to be stalking, you don't need to have a gun, you don't really need to have a camera. You need a set of binoculars and then I mean I I've not done the traveling you have and I haven't seen the wildlife spectacles that you have but I Think that it takes a lot of beating, and there's an awful lot of people that have seen the wildlife spectacles, um, and they still come back and they, they still say it takes a lot of beating, so I can't be entirely wrong.
1: No, um, it really does. There's something, but equally, I get excited,
0: you know. I'm I am I, I've never hunted outside this country, um there's been a plan for a really good friend and I to go over to America, hopefully, oh, yes, and do we some different hunting, yeah, time. yeah, um, and that's something I'm really excited for, and actually, I there's so much. I can see and it it's taken me a little while. I don't know. I went through a bit of a stage the problem is when it's your job, you get all funny with it and you go through different stages. And that you always basically like it. But depending on what time of year it is and the season you've had and the people you've dealt with and everything else, you get to the point oh, the last thing on earth I wanna do is go somewhere else and do this and pay for it. <laughs> um but I've been really excited. So since COVID we've been sort of me and my friend Richard have been kind of trying to plan, plan this trip and it's been quite awkward for a number of reasons because we both, he's a keeper as well, he's a grouse keeper. Um, and so we're both basically off limits for the majority of hunting seasons in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, and we're both quite British and we don't really want to go anywhere hot. <laughs> uh, so, so like, you know, we can go to Africa and shoot whatever you can go and shoot in Africa. And that's, but that doesn't really appeal very much. So it's been really nice for us. And I should say for the listener that the plan is that we will go uh, to Idaho. And we will go spring bear hunting uh, on public land for, and it's important I say it's on public land, as we referred earlier to hunting douche. Um, (laughs) No other sort of hunting in America matters if you listen to Instagram. So Uh, it will be over the counter public land hunting for for spring bears, which is great because it means we can go um, sort of in a nice quiet time for us industry-wise. And The plan, I think, is we're going to go, it'll be sort of two weeks including traveling, so probably 10 days in the back country uh another key phrase to get in there, the back country uh there is no front country is there in America. there is only the back country um but yeah and then three, you're just uh, going
1: to pray for hump day
0: yeah <laughs> whatever the fuck that is yeah um yeah so we'll we'll go over and we'll do a kind of self-guided um try and get really far into some sort of cool wildernessy areas and really use it. and i think that's the thing that both of us know the chance of us seeing uh the, the the chance of us, if we do see bears, working out that it's a shootable bear in time to shoot it is probably really slim because my friend Richard actually has seen some bears. Um, but I've never seen a black bear. Uh, and I uh, may be having a zoo as a child, I don't know, but certainly not with enough authority to tell whether that's a, a shootable bear according to their. So, how are you going to work th- that out? I've, um, so there's a lot of different, the, the, the honest answer is probably that I don't know. Yes, I've read quite a lot yeah. about it. I've watched quite a lot on good old YouTube, which is a phenomenal resource. And this is the flip side of this. We can sit and bitch and moan, as we love to do, about all of That's this social media. and yeah. but, but but actually, the amazing thing is, like from from watching people do this on YouTube, you can gain a reasonable understanding, I would suggest, mm-hmm. of how to do it. Uh, like, it's, it's a gateway uh, uh, that uh, never existed. yeah before. and like zero level of competency and i you know I, i'm being slightly old-fashioned as i am i went and bought after quite a lot of youtube research and some <laughs> even more old school a, Byron, a book <laughs> <laughs> the paper film um you know so like i did a load of youtube research and um read lots of articles and, and bits and bobs on the internet. And I was like, actually just because, you know, I come from that, that that's probably the last generation of people <laughs> we come read. From, well, that like, <laughs> will be like, Hmm, I can watch these things on YouTube, but what will really confirm in my head that it's true is a book because only published work. It's sort of like, right. So I bought this book. Uh, I think it's called black bear hunting. Funnily enough. I think there's a picture of a black bear on the front. It's quite a green book from memory. Um, and I read this book and I was like halfway through it and I was like, Jesus, this this book th- this book doesn't have the inf- the level of information that I got from YouTube and this was a relatively highly recommended book about black bear hunting. There are very few books about black bear hunting, specifically. Uh, that might be because I'm not in the world to know where to find them, but from again looking on the internet and trying to buy good books uh, about well, we might about get a bunch bear. of
1: emails off the back of this podcast of people who are experts about black i bears really hope so and can get please you on the phone. do
0: i would love that very much what i have been amazed at is the generosity of people who i don't know but i know someone that knows someone's cousin that duh, 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 including a man that um has offered to lend us a handgun in case we meet a grizzly bear that's quite exciting um uh but you know bear spray i I, I think there's i I will go for all of the things (laughs) but i don't really think a pistol is necessary because i'm going to go with a really big gun so i feel a small gun to back up the big gun is probably a slightly strange thing but i know nothing about bears so maybe that's why um but no i think it's amazing that you know you can watch a lot of youtube videos and you can yeah that's (laughs) true i can attach it to my binocular harness (laughs) A
1: lot of, some of them do have the little side holsters. on. Yeah, no,
0: the one that I use that I really like, I remember when I first ordered it and I was like, oh my God, I can buy a holster that clips on the side. I I must do this. (laughs) Even though you can't (laughs) own one here. I can't legally own a gun, but I could look cool, Um, which I should say I didn't do. So I am holsterless, uh, which would be a shame if I went to America. But I I'm don't. Sure you could get I'm, sh- I'm sure if you can get a pistol, you can get a bit of leather to stick it in, can't you? But I think it's amazing that YouTube, you know, has put me in a situation because, and it's it would be much harder to do with, uh, ironically, the other way around. If I was an American bear hunter that wanted to come stag stalking, it would probably be really hard to learn good information about stag stalking from YouTube. But you know, I've
1: never tried.
0: Yeah, neither have I. But what I've seen hasn't been great in the most part, with a few exceptions. That's um, how I learned how to film make on the YouTube. On the YouTube. yeah. There you go. There's a lot less people doing it when you looked to do it.
1: Oh, back then. I mean, now it's full of people. It kind of makes me laugh a little bit because a lot of the, while there's some insanely good resources and some very talented people putting um, YouTube videos out, helping people um, in their... Making of YouTube uh, yeah, videos. Exa- well, well <laughs> in the, helping people towards being better filmmakers, there is a large proportion of... YouTube how to filmmakers that never actually make any films. And there's a bit of me that's like, if you were actually any good, you would just go make and make films, films rather than telling people how to films. make films. Yeah, uh, but there are there is some some crazy good resources on there as well. And, and like I, I wish some of them that I've seen now, like some of the a lot of the stuff I know because I've had the to learn it over, over years or i have worked with people who have the knowledge so i've met the people in person and that's where i've got the knowledge from but yeah that didn't exist to the same depth and breadth no. as 6 7 years ago
0: yeah it's mad isn't it the bear hunting things yeah it's really interesting because there's so many people turning out really good videos and they're not necessarily instructional videos but as you do with these things having done a little tiny bit of it myself you 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 are you're trying to explain the decisions you've made in these situations, so you're th- these just general hunting films that are made, a lot of them have really sort of handy little nuggets of information, none of which I can recall now about sizing a bear or sexing a bear or aging a bear on the hoof mm. a long way away um so I, yeah it's it's gonna be quite a fun it's gonna be quite a fun thing to do because I think unguided hunting in areas you don't know is quite rare to the British person, even someone in the industry it's it, it's, is. it is unusual uh so flying. Around the world to then go to a place that we don't know to look for an animal that we don't know is pretty much doomed to fail. Like if we shoot a about bear, that, right? no, it's, it's not about at all. the reason for going. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, also, it's just a cool. Uh, it's it's a way to explore that landscape. It's the only really way I know of exploring a landscape and getting the most out of it. Yeah, because um, I'm rubbish at going on holiday. If you get a bear,
1: are you going to turn its um, pelt into a coat like Anthony Hopkins in Legends of the Fall?
0: No, I'm going to turn it into a massive rug and I'm going to pray that none of my dogs eat it. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> I uh, think Haggis would love to sleep on Haggis that. the sausage dog like, would probably fight the bear. I think that would or, be a good. Or, or right now, Haggis the sausage dog would like some of the hair from the oh, rug so that you can put it up. back
0: not, on her body. Let's not keep that horrible <laughs> thing that I did to that poor little dog. You know, in perpetuity in <laughs> now, podcast history. I, I should explain I came, again. I came, I came
1: back, uh, and it was only a matter of weeks since I've been here, and half of his sausage dog is a little tackle had disappeared. I was like,
0: where is she? What happened to Haggis? (laughs) Well, I've clipped her, I think, once before. And I clipped her and then got told by someone whose fiance is a dog groomer that I shouldn't have done that and I should have stripped it like a a Border Terrier, which I didn't know. Um, So now I won't ever be able to strip that dog. I will only ever cut its hair. And um, I did quite a good, I think I did it back in September and did quite a good job of it. And crucially at that point had the little guard on the clippers that made it all even. And then the other day it was snowy and she was very, very hairy and all balled up with snow like a sheep. And it was really annoying because it wet the whole floor. And I was like, oh, I'm going to shave the dog again. Got the clippers. Didn't have the thing anymore, but was like, I'm sure I'd lost that before I did its hair last time. And <laughs> got three cuts into the dog and I was like, oh, fucking hell. And it looks it looks like it's got alopecia. That's the honest answer. I mean,
1: if you went into the barber and the barber said, sorry, mate, um, I got no guards for my trimmer today, but don't worry, I'll be okay.
0: Eh. Yeah. yeah. I mean,
1: if I had no guards for my beard trimmer, it would be a disaster. Spoken like a true hipster. <laughs> <laughs> I had a beard before the word hipster was even invented.
0: I'm sure you did. But you did turn up to my house only wearing double denim and <laughs> a Ducted. neckerchief, so I feel <laughs> I feel the ice
1: is very thin. <laughs> I did wear double denim today, which is a very rare occurrence for me. But I was my excuse is I was breaking in my jacket. So if I not- thought I could do it. I could break my newish jacket in in company that I know well.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true. And obviously, knowing me well, you knew that I wouldn't tease you about it. Um, <laughs> of course not. Let's not oh, talk about this. Podcast. is incredibly dull. <laughs> um, so, just going back to my little thing about going and shooting a bear or trying to shoot a bear and probably not shooting a bear, which is what's going to happen. Um, with all of so, with me and my absolutely no international travel slash hunting, it makes me really want to go and do this because it's different. Do you find because you've done a ludicrous amount of travelling and all right, not necessarily hunting, but spending an awful lot of time on hunts all over the world. Does that make you, you know, does that make you want to go and shoot rabbits at home? Does it make you want to go and shoot an ibex in a stan? Does it make you want to go and shoot a bear or a leopard or a eland, an eland, whatever it is, an eland? Um or you know or you does it make you not want to do any of it do, do you think it has like do, does byron pace now have a different outlook on it all and of course you will do because it's a different time but that like pre getting, and you've always traveled a lot and gone to africa and things but that pre before you've been you know you've been what ibex hunting twice
1: oh uh no well, second time will be in a few weeks
0: second time but well, you, you've been to the you went to the himalayas didn't you? oh sorry Did I- yeah well that was a blue sheep blue right, sheep okay. Tar. So, yeah, but you know, so you've houses. done what, like yeah. two tar hunts, like yeah. a blue sheep, Ibex, yeah. a lot of these like, you know, uh, sort of like lifetime goals for a lot of people who do some of the stuff. I should emphasize,
1: I didn't pull the trigger on any of those. No, I but was you documenting
0: were... stuff, but I was there. And for me, it doesn't yeah. make any difference. Yeah, exactly. So you've been in that environment doing that thing. Does that make you, are you like, wow, I really want to go and shoot an Ibex myself now? Or are you no, like, exactly. I've done that, but I'd like to go and do this other thing? Or It's strange because... um
1: When I was a kid, I guess, but when I say kid, I mean like early 20s. You're not really a man then. You think you are, but you're not really. Um, All I desperately wanted to do was be immersed in those environments. And I, I was never so much worried about being the guy carrying the gun because I knew that in most of those places that I wanted to go and experience, I could never afford to do it. So my passport to those places became carrying a camera and my pen, because I could write about it. At that time, not particularly well. Didn't take particularly good pictures either. But good enough that somebody somewhere would print something. And that was how I ended up in those places. And so, yeah, I've, through that journey, had opportunities to go to locations where not only would I possibly never have been able to afford to go myself as the hunter, there would also be actually, in many instances, absolutely zero reason for you to go there other than hunting.
0: Yeah, there like is nothing Tajikistan. else
1: happening. I mean, there is lots of cool stuff happening in Tajikistan, but particularly where I was in Tajikistan and those mountain ranges. There is no reason unless, I don't know, literally unless you'd pick the point on the map and said, oh, this would be a cool mountain range to explore. I'll go walk up there. Yeah. Um, Which would be difficult because you're walking through people's villages and it's, you know, it's... It is the only reason to be in those places. And you are, by being there for that reason, actually giving something back. I think that a lot of um, travelers who go to places because they want to experience it, it's quite a selfish endeavor. And I'll caveat that by saying that my reasons, particularly early on, was a selfish endeavor too. It's because I wanted it all. like I wanted to experience the things that I had read in books. And I felt like I wanted a piece of that, but I wanted to be a story that I could tell. And I think that if you are literally just a visitor in many of those places, you're not really putting anything back. You're kind of just taking, but on a lot of the trips that I've been on, which are very often hunting related, there is so much put back, you know, whether, and a lot of that is financially. Like the, the place that I was at in Tajikistan, They had taken uh, from, basically when the Russians pulled out of Afghanistan, because we were on the border of Afghanistan, Right. they had taken a population of 40 Markor to 800 Markor, from the 90s to now. Basically because this family banded together, got a whole bunch of the the villagers on board across these six different valleys, and said this is a resource, and if we get hunters in to come and pay for that, I can pay you not to go and kill this wild food resource. Because that was the only reason that there was basically... Like on on the Afghan side, There's uh, so they told me, there's basically nothing left. There's no Ibex, there's no markhor. It's the same mountain range. We were literally looking over the river to Afghanistan. But when the Russians pulled out, they left a lot of guns there and a lot of ammunition, which then got into the hands of local people it's very rural, poor communities, and this was a food resource. So they were you know, shooting these wild goats and sheep, because <laughs> why wouldn't you? Um, and so that's, it's an amazing conservation story there, where the, the, the resource that you're putting back in as the visitor, as, as a visitor who is hunting, has 100% been the catalyst and, and the sole reason that they're able to protect those mountain ranges for the wildlife that lives in there. But to get back to your question, so I've seen that now, and and I think that I'm at a place, have been at a place in the last couple of years, where my biggest driver for going to, or wanting to go to a location like that, is to tell that story. Yeah. I honestly couldn't care less about being the guy who goes there with the rifle and taking the shot. Yeah. Like, I know that I could take that shot. Because I spend, or not in the last couple of years, but I have spent a lot of time behind a rifle. I reviewed guns for a decade. I have spent a lot of time hunting in the highlands here and in different parts around the world. And I know what I'm capable of. And I know that physically I can do that because I've done it alongside the people who are hunting. And in fact, probably had to do more work because I was filming and taking photos and stuff. So if it's the physical challenge that you're after, I do it plus if it's the, the skill set in shooting, yeah, okay, there is one aspect, like, oh, how excited do you get? Like, can yeah. you keep calm enough to be able to take a shot on, on an animal, which can be a problem for some people. It's not a problem I've ever really suffered with, that kind of like yeah. buck fever. I can tell you the last time I felt it, and it was, I was backing up on a hippo hunt when I was like 20 in the Caprivi, And that's the last time that I had, and it's not to say that I don't get any excitement when I'm when I'm hunting and, and all the appreciation that comes with it, but that like tangible adrenaline rush tasted in your mouth yeah. that I think happens seems to be quite a common thing from some people that I speak yeah. to, I, and I have to say, particularly like some of my American friends, um, it's just not something that
0: I, I can it, really. It's relate relevant to. to. It's relevant. Trigger pulling excitement is relevant to trigger pulling opportunity.
1: I think that might be some of it. Yeah. Whereas you're only you know taking one maybe two animals a year you know, where we are here mm. and you're far more than I do, but I've had the opportunities to go and help people like friends of mine like you. Yeah. Where you're shooting multiple animals in a day, but it's part of the management of the land. Yeah. And it's not that you're that the taking of the life means less, but the more that you do it, the more that you're kind of in control of what your body does while you're doing yeah, it. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so I don't, yeah, I I definitely don't have, there is one desire that I have. If there is one thing, and I would love to do it this year, actually. And my friend of mine, Alex Olofsa, and I were talking about it last year and actually just a couple of days ago on the phone, was I would really love to go and hunt an African Cape buffalo. Um, and I want it to be over like 14 days. I want it to be somewhere like in deep. Mozambique or Zambia um, and I want to go and experience that that whole process yeah but yeah going after an ibex or going back to Nepal being up in the mountains and blue sheep I mean that's very few people ever get the opportunity to hunt that and I've seen that done I don't have a desire to go and do it myself but I do have this incredible thirst to tell stories that haven't been told. Yeah. More so, if you ask me what my like, <laughs> like driver in life was as a, as a 19-year-old, I wanted to go and hunt places, or I wanted to go and fish places, or at least be around people who were doing it, so that yeah. I could like, glean a little bit of it. I care far less now about even the hunting aspect of it, or even the fishing aspect, or, or the various outdoor pursuits that I enjoy. I have a, um, a desire to tell stories about the natural world and the world that we live in, but it's much more about the, the human interaction and the human connection with nature. And I really get a massive kick out of being able to tell those stories. And I think that's kind of, and, and maybe I'll come back to it. And I think that if there's a, a, like a really positive takeaway about that kind of shift for my work, because, I mean, you were asking what I do for fun. That's the kind of, there's a big blurring of lines because a lot of the things that I do because I would do them anyway, because it's what I enjoy is also what I do for work. So I love telling those stories and I would like to do it. I used to do it when I had a different job. Yeah. You know, when I worked in finance, I was still doing that, not because for the menial the amount job. of extra money that I was being paid to publish at that time. It was because it was something that I actually enjoyed doing. But what it does mean now is that when I do have the opportunity like I did um, just after I saw you when we were talking about stag shooting in in October, I went home and I was stalking with some friends for Robux. And I had no camera with me. It was just purely because it's something that I love to do. It was on a farm that I've hunted for 15 plus years. I was with great company and I got so much out of that. Yeah. And I really appreciated like every second yeah. being on the hill and everything that meant. And that means a lot to be able to to take those little bits of separation where I can kind of like split the work. Yeah. So it, it's it's nice that I can kind of return to that because the problem is if if it was I or the problem that I kind of started to find was if If I was making like hunting shows, which I don't I have done in the past, if I if that was the my kind of work, if I was only because I don't even write hunting stories anymore, but if I was writing hunting stories and I was filming hunting shows and I was taking photos of people killing stuff all the time or fishing, you actually don't want to go and do it yourself. Or it becomes very difficult to do it yourself and not feel like you should be getting more out of that. You should be posting something. You should be showing the world, yeah. hey, look. And it's it's an easy trap to fall into. But I don't I don't have that because it's slightly less of what I do now. So I can go out and go stalking by myself or stalking with a friend and just enjoy it for purely what it is. Yeah. And I'm glad I've kind of got back to that because i lost it a little bit.
0: Yeah, and I think you do. I think you go through phases where you're just like, oh, God. You know, I... Yeah. You, you can do it with any part of that. Like you say, that's strange. And, and we're in a very similar position in that the things that you love doing happen to be, don't happen to be because you've made it that way, but are your job. And therefore there's times when you're like, oh, God, I could, you know, I just don't want to do that. I don't want to go out and try and shoot seeker hinds in the rain. I want to sit in the house, be dry. Yeah. Cause I've and been wet. my dog. <laughs> yeah, I've been waiting like, for like five days, but oh, I need to go and do that. And I think the the interesting thing with that for me is that actually when you get generally when you get out and you get past that barrier of oh, I should go and do that, but I can't really be asked, and you get out. I think the thinking about it is worse than the doing of it. Because as soon as you get back out, you're like, oh, I'm doing this again. And actually, I really like doing this. Yeah. So even though it's it's raining like there me. are
1: a lot of things in life you could be doing which are not as yeah. fun.
0: Yeah, but I think, and, and I don't know, I'm in a job that people constantly remind me I'm really lucky to be in, which yeah. is an odd position. You're constantly, like, the people in, in the nicest way possible. Like, oh, you have, you know, you have the dream job. <laughs> and like, that's delightful until you're having a really shit day and someone's telling you how lucky you are to have that job. And you're like, oh. Mm. Yeah,
1: but it's also not fucking... Like, for you. I was having yeah. a podcasting with Ben O'Brien the other day and he was oh, asking yeah. me a similar like he's got a new show out um, called Woodside, if I'm remembering rightly. And I think I'm the first episode on, on, his new, hey. on his new podcast. And we were talking about this exact thing. And I was saying the amount of times similar to what you're saying, the amount of times I have people saying, Oh, you know, if you're going if you're going on one of those trips, I'll come and carry your bag. It's yeah. you know, it's really lucky that you have that job. It's not fucking lucky at all.
0: And also, ninety percent <laughs> of those people don't want to carry that bag.
1: No, well, that's not, I don't think they would last a week. No, <laughs> because it's not. Um, I I feel very fortunate, but I don't feel. Oh, of course. I don't feel lucky because it no. is one. It, it has. It is the avenue that I have walked down. The same as you are in the job that you're in now because of very deliberate choices that you've made throughout life. Probably. Um, I think so. Yeah. I think so. I'm going to go with that. Yeah, I think so too. Um, but you wouldn't want to carry the 23 kilo camera bag and tow the other bag and then the other two bags also weigh 23 kilos. Trust me. No.
0: I should I'd, take somebody up I'd on probably, that one time I was see say, how long they last. Yeah. But take someone up on it that looks like me rather than someone else that looks like you. I reckon, <laughs> I reckon that 23 <laughs> kilo bag sounds pretty light. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, it's a really weird thing. And I think it's that odd, you know, we work in a non-industry that a small percentage of the people involved in think is an industry. I don't even know what I to do, most to people is a community. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't really know what you do. At least you have a title. You have a well, title. Well, Yeah. You it kind of know. What you, do. You, you, you sorry. Did you say you don't know what I do? Yeah, I don't really know. <laughs> no. what You do. Like, yeah, I, I can tell people what. Like I can. Uh, yeah. How do you describe? How do you describe Byron Pace? I don't, well, we once, to we once sat time. down in a
1: lounge and did a podcast. Is, is, is that a job?
0: Yeah, kind I don't. Of, yeah, like my, my dad, well, my dad, so <laughs> to hilarious. fill you in, my dad is not a man who particularly engages <laughs> within <laughs> within media that isn't the Telegraph. And um he'd listened to a podcast that Byron, had, probably the first one that we did years and years ago. And uh, he met Byron recently and was like, oh, I was like, oh, dad, this is Byron who I've done podcasts with. You went, oh yes, the man that sells coffee. (laughs) 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 What the fuck? But of course, like that, you did did have your own coffee. And my dad in his very like black and white, straightforward mind of a, you know, 70 year old man was just like, well, Podcasting He's a coffee, coffee salesman that happens to have his own very strange private radio show that I don't <laughs> understand. I was like, yeah, that'll do. So, coffee salesman, that's just how I'll describe you now. Yeah, Brian I mean, Pace, who I mean,
1: sells that makes more yeah. sense. And I don't even do that anymore.
0: No, I haven't <laughs> sold coffee for five years. It is, it is odd, though. I think you, you, what is nice is that your your little niche is lovely because it means you have a great flexibility to be objective about it. And by make, by it being made or you making it, so much so much of an international thing i think it gives it a very interesting perspective because you know the podcast even since i was i mean we're talking like hmm, six years since we did the first one together i guess maybe uh, five, yeah five, it was six. like just after i had been at arden american so that would have been six maybe seven years ago six years ago so, uh, anyway um then like your podcast was a lot more british centric you weren't doing the weight of international work that you now do by a long 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 way um and i think the interesting thing is that actually you must get to a point where you've probably interviewed everybody in britain that you (laughs) or that's not fair the majority of people that you want to interview and have a realistic chance of interviewing you probably run out of folk and you i mean Christ on a bike, you don't want to interview me more than the bare minimum. because I mean, only once a year. That's all all the world can take, Sam. Yeah, and even then it's a push. Um, But I think what's nice from your point of view, or from what I think about your point of view, is that like that international thing, that international way of looking at it, like you say, like the, you know, your um, Tajikistan-Marcourt story, that is very relevant to... Many, many situations around the world, possibly not to the same extre- extent, possibly to more of an extent in other places. But what I think is really lovely, like you say, is that all of our, whatever we are, community, industry, uh, business, whatever it is, it all comes down to people that are very passionate about a natural world, yeah. and that's what I found more and more fascinating. The more I've grown while being a part of that community, is actually you find quite often that you, you're not nearly as far from other communities in inverted commas as you thought you were and a lot of there's a huge amount of crossover between you know the people that see themselves as being hunters in a hunting community and the people that really don't see themselves being close to that at all but actually the, the interest is probably similar um everybody just thinks they have the right way of doing it everybody thinks that they interact with that natural world in the right way whether that's because you're a hunter and you like hunting and you therefore think that's the right way of interacting with it, or whether you're a birdwatcher and you think birdwatching is the right way to interact with it, it's not. The key thing is the interacting with the nature it doesn't really matter how you do it. Because if you're interacting, then
1: you you start to glean aspects of appreciation for its its existence. Yeah, and also, It like, means that you'll actually do something to
0: protect it. You'd hope so. Well, you would. I think so. it's quite questionable. I do find it remarkable that so many people. Um, There are so many people who are passionate outdoors people and uh, hunters and all these different things and bits and bobs, but they remain sort of like fundamentally opposed to, you know, stopping climate change or adjusting things to try and help the national world because they don't see that as being relevant. I I find that really interesting. Um, Do you see that? I'm not sure I'm I'm particularly aware of it. I think so. I think it's. am aware of climate change. Just let me just clarify that. Particularly aware of these people you're talking about. (laughs) But yeah, you know, those people, I think it's possibly generational to a degree. Um, But I think there's a lot of people that maybe don't see. Like I see what I do. uh, it, It is environmentalism. Like I could easily describe myself as an environmentalist. What I'm passionate about, what I work in, what I see as being the important parts of my job are mainly environmentalism. I you know, that that is, you know, conservation is is a part of environmentalism. Part of that has to be lobbying. Part of that has to be trying to create social change. And part of that also has to be, you know, big ugly people like me with spades. Um but I, I, I don't I, I think that I, I think there's a lot of people that wouldn't agree with that who partake certainly in, in field sports in this country. Who see environmentalists as more of a problem for oh, what they're no, passionate that, that about? Is, I think true. that's what I'm trying to say. You know, there's yeah. a, whereas actually, most people that are fired up about the environment are probably more similar in a lot of viewpoints than than people who are fired up about hunting. Um, W- no, would, I think, think I, I think I think that's if right. that makes sense. Yeah, Does that
1: make sense? No, no, yeah, I, I I can see these what are saying. all the reasons
0: we should have discussed what we were talking about first. You see, there've <laughs> been a lot of us going, mm. but um, yeah, no, I think it's really interesting. And I think, like you say, that the the change and the change happens in all different ways. I was reading a thing earlier about um, you know, the RSPB Abernethy, which, which is a uh, a nature reserve run by the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. I have yeah. to remember these things that Post- lots of people that listen to this aren't. <laughs> people in scotland um a, so that,
1: a previous capa stronghold
0: uh yeah and that's exactly it so you know a, a capa stronghold for a long time and when there was first capa when the first i think the first funding for Kappa kelly was in the like mid 90s late 90s and they got like six million quid and there was two thousand capa i think i was reading and um five or six years later they ran out of funding it was the end of the project and they said well, uh, what, well has it worked kind of thing you know there's EU funding and, and is it successful and they said yes it's it's very successful it's kind of halted the decline blah 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 but we are down 400 birds and they'd start up with 2000 they're at 1600 or something like this so we've had this decline in capercaillie, which are very important species in that environment um, highly protected Um." And that decline's been fairly drastic, I would say, in my understanding, since, say, the 80s. Um, and the RSPB, literally just now, I think within the last 12 months to two years, have admitted that there is an increased badger population. In Abernathy? Yeah. And they're seeing more badgers. Um, they're seeing more other, more of other mammalian predators. So, martens, foxes, and badgers are, are the big the big predators. And, of course, two of those things are protected. Um, which makes it fascinating. And it does make you wonder a little bit if uh, one of the reasons, and I'm sure there are a great many, and it's not as simple as this is going to sound, but one of the reasons that those birds do better in Scandinavian countries is in a lot of cases they do hunt badgers. Um, and, that you know, they they legally dig them with terriers and, you know, that's they eat them as well, very Scandinavian. I
1: didn't know they ate badgers, though.
0: Yes, I remember reading a thing by Clarissa Dixon-Wright, that that great bastion of oh, yes. funny things. That the, the badger ham is quite a delicacy. The Germans eat it as well. Huh. Um, or did. I don't know, they still do. But, you know, the, there's all sorts of interesting stuff. But I think it's nice that... Uh, I think certainly there's more of a mellowing in our industry. I think people of my generation are a little bit older, um, or a lot older in some cases, but, you know, uh, are see less of a divide between you know well you work for the rspb and i'm a gamekeeper so we won't get on i think that's less of a thing now thank goodness i think there's good people in all of the teams there's also bad people in all of the teams um but i think that there's a general sort of going forward mentality which i think is good um but i think a lot of say my clients Will be sort of fundamentally anti-RSPB, as a, as an example. And
1: is that just because it's been ingrained in the culture?
0: Probably. Probably. and there's also lots of people that will swingle back to social media and the press, and you know, it's, a, it's all, it all gets people very fired up, and there's lots of you know lots of daft stuff being said, and lots of things that aren't true, and you know, I think our industry can be pretty terrible in terms of what it puts out as as content. Yeah, no, that's. Um, and there's a lot of stuff that just isn't isn't really correct and we peddle it and we peddle it very very hard
1: um, I wonder if we'll see Capicali back in decent numbers in Abernethy or anywhere in Scotland actually I mean there's some places I suppose some, where they're they're doing
0: not, not to whatever. sound miserable but I think it's more of a time of how long we will see any of them fall I think, down to know.
1: predators or habitat because the habitat surely the habitat that's suitable for them surely must be increasing now
0: um, I don't know enough to to tell you if there's an answer and if that what that answer is. That's mm. my honest answer is that I just don't know. I don't know if there is an answer. I don't know if there's a solution that will work to get them back. Personally, I think it's probably habitat, predators and disturbance. I think disturbance, disturbance changes. Disturbance is a big part of it, particularly um, when they're lacking. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, we can't close public access and I think that's something that we should be able to do for a species so threatened and so important as that. Um, we can't... You know something that they do do in other places is that, is that they review the protection of a certain species. So the badger, for example, and they're culling them in England because there is an overpopulation. So why, you know, if they can cull them for TB in areas where they farm dairy cattle, why on earth couldn't we cull them for capercaillie protection in areas where there's lots of badgers and not very many capercaillie? It's a good question. Um And I. Sadly, I don't think that's ever going to be a conversation. I don't even think that's a conversation that the people that have these conversations will be willing to have because it's too prickly. it would just waste time because the answer of no will be so short and so hard. I wonder
1: but, if anyone's actually doing a study on predation of nests by
0: um, in Abernethy. Now. I don't know about Abernethy. I know that Kathy Fletcher is oh really? a GWCT scientist. Yep. I know she uh, has done some very interesting work on Kappa relatively recently and i'm not a man that is fully up to speed to it i might have to get her on kathy yeah she'd be a great person to get on would be kathy fletcher she's a very knowledgeable person interesting person tell me about the seeker here
1: because that's actually the reason one of the reasons that i've come up for this trip is tomorrow we've got a a day on the hill with a rather fine chef who cooked for us tonight um and we're going to be hunting seeker
0: yes i hope so um so i'll give you a bit of We'll give a full bit of background, not for you because you know, but for um the listener. um so I uh, at the sort of uh, in the early spring of last year, um made a bit of a change and took uh a job as the headkeeper on the estate with sat at the moment where I live. um It's a just shy of 20 thousand acre fairly traditional mixed highland estate. um I think we've got about 10 percent forest cover um and the predominant management objective is is, is a traditional mixed highland estate so um we stalk red deer on the open hill um we put effort into trying to produce grouse which we didn't have any to shoot last year but hopefully in future years we will have some to shoot with pointers like we were talking about earlier uh and we have a you know we have a small bit of a salmon river we have lock fishing for trout um it's a it's a very very lovely place it's somewhere I'm very I am very lucky to work um I'm very happy working here and it's it's a it's a fantastic spot. Um but one of the things that we do have that in some ways is not so positive and in other ways perhaps is, is that we have quite a large population of Japanese seekadeer. Um so we're in the we're, we're north of MNS here, um and Japanese deer are fairly well spread through the Northern Highlands. I'm trying to think where the Highland line is. and the, I mean, the deer and Newton Moor, which are relatively mm-hmm. low down, and then those deer go mm-hmm. across towards Fort William. And then um, down the west. And then... Uh,
1: I mean, they're yeah. in Tweed
0: Valley. So, yes, yeah, so they're in, in the Tweed valley, valley, which is... as the, so they got out. I think that was an escape. So the Japanese deer got into Britain because it was brought as an ornamental species, like so many things were, and then they escaped, and then they have... Uh, Pro- proliferated, proliferate. Pro- proliferated. Had proliferate role in my head, <laughs> uh, but yeah. So they, they they have expanded their range exceptionally well. Um, they they're a very well adapted species to our climate. That is essentially the thing they they do exceptionally well here. Um, and so there was a few different parks that they escaped from in the in the in the North Highlands, um, and different populations have sort of linked up. They're predominantly a forest deer. You do see them on the hill in some places more than in other places. In
1: Ireland, they get a lot of them way out on the hill.
0: Don't they? There's an awful lot of hybridisation in Ireland as well, which is fairly, the only hybridisation that I'm aware of in Scotland is down in Argyle, so the peninsula that goes down towards Campbelltown, where Tarba is.
1: Now, were you saying to me, because we were talking about this last time I was here, that... Their thinking now was that this was when they they were expanding their range and there just simply wasn't that many secret and it was kind of forcing mm. hybridization.
0: Yes. Um I'm fairly reliably informed that the predominant reason there was Seeker hybridization in that um part of the world, so in that sort of argyle area, was because and we're talking in the in the probably 70s, 80s, early 90s, before my time, um, uh, there was hybridisation occurring because the Forestry Commission was shooting, who own an awful lot of land there, they're a major landowner, is what is now called Forest and Land Scotland, but was at the time called the Forestry Commission. Um, They had a very hard line on deer populations. They were shooting red deer stags all year round, out of season. Um, They were not shooting red hinds all year round out of season um and so the way that seeker deer expand their range is that the young males are pushed out and they sort of you know go exploring if you like um so there was these young male seeker trundling about in deep dark forestry blocks in Argyll, and they were finding groups of red hinds and no red stags uh and so these hinds would stand for the seeker um there was quite an extensive study done at the time to see the extent of it there was a lot of worry about it people were fairly concerned that it would um dilute the the gene pool of red deer in scotland and introduce you know a, a non a non red deer gene um but that seems to be very limited you see you, you see very little Hybridization, or, or I'm I've aware, actually never seen it. a very little hybridization. I don't think I've, I've ever seen, seen a it, live he- hybrid me. seeker red that I'm aware of. Um, but it's not particularly expensive because generally they haven't expanded in those same circumstances. Um, and so somewhere like here where we have a quite a large population of seeker deer and a good healthy population of red deer, I think the chance of hybridization would be slim. I would never say it wouldn't because they happen. stick to their species, yeah. Um, And you see red deer and seeker deer mingling. Mm -hmm. You see, uh, you know, we've had seeker stags way out on the hill with red stags. Um, We've had seeker hinds way out on the hill with red hinds. Um, But we, I'm not aware of any hybridization that has happened here. Um, But in Ireland, it's been quite extensive and I don't know enough about it to tell you why that is probably because the, of how land ownership and hunting works over there and declining red populations or whatever. Um, But we do have quite a heavy, quite a heavy seeker population here in the woods. Um, We've started doing so when I came here, I was very aware we had just through the signs of the habitat had um, quite a, quite a population of of woodland deer. Um, And I think quite a population of seeker as well. Not to the extent that some places do, but, but a good amount um and so we've we've been quite hard on them um we've uh we implemented an in-season uh zero tolerance policy so there's no management of the seeker other than if it's in-season and it's you know safe to shoot just to try and bring that population down uh, and try and get it to a level that i think is Slightly more sustainable, um, because obviously I don't think they, you know, as I've said, I don't think there's a competition with the red deer in terms of hybridization, but I think there is definitely a grazing competition. You know, it, it is more mouths, mouths to, to feed. feed. Yeah. Um, red deer being our native uh, or one of our two native deer species, um, I I would rather have the I would rather have those mouths being native red deer mouths than. Japanese secretive arts interestingly as well this is an area that um historically you know we're talking victorian stalking books uh talk about you know shooting a good number of of and indeed you know speaking to people yeah, uh, no, sorry, gosh, uh, a good number of roe deer. <laughs> Glad we clarified that. <laughs> yeah, uh, a, g- a good number of roe deer, and indeed, yeah. in, you know, well into living memory, there was more roe deer here, and, and they were shot in small numbers. Do um, think the
1: Seeker have pushed them
0: out now? I don't think the Seeker have pushed them out as much as I think they potentially have browsed them out a little bit. Ah. I have seen a very few roe deer here, but not, not what I Their f- browse
1: line will be higher.
0: Their browse lines higher, and and they are, like I say, just a very successful Mm. um animal in that environment um so I'd like to think if we can reduce the seeker population slightly, we might see a bit of a kick in our rodeo population, which would be lovely, mm. but honestly i think um I think it's a fairly uh steady uh job in that i, I think we're gonna to be you know we we will continue this uh shoot on site policy in season um next season definitely we still have you know we've we've well, they've shot nearly, well, we've shot nearly 60 Seeker Heinz now. Well, they've certainly shot nearly 50 uh, Seeker Heinz plus carbs. Um, my target uh, at the start of the season was, was 50 Seeker Heinz. Um, and, uh, you know, I think if we can deliver that along with our Red Deer Cull and the various other things that we have to do, and I'm lucky that I've got a very good team uh, here with me, the three other guys that um very helpful, two trainees keepers uh, and an underkeeper so um we're quite well staffed and uh, and there's uh, you know there's there's good effort being put in to achieve that goal. but realistically it's like all things in in this job it's it's nothing's quick it'll take us a good long time and i think realistically the seeker are probably here to stay i don't think we're going to extirpate them i don't think we'll reduce the numbers um to a level of concern for their welfare you know um i don't think they're ever going to be in trouble sort of thing because they are they are very, very successful, even now you know you you can see red calves and uh, in quite quite poor condition. We've not had a particularly hard winter at all so far. Touchwood what is it the the twelfth of January mm-hmm. it? it's not been as hard as it previously has been by this time of year um but the seeker calves and the seeker hinds generally look in much better condition than the red calves and the red hinds.
1: Is that mostly because they
0: are more forest dwelling, possibly, but we have. Red deer that are um, yeah I suppose you do that are pretty much exclusively forest dwelling and
1: and I bring up seeker I mean that what a great piece of background because they are particularly good eating and what we are doing one of the things we're doing tomorrow is actually hoping to get a seeker or two to add to the seeker that you've already shot which are potentially or they are going to a restaurant in Edinburgh yep. Um how did that so- come about I mean a lot of I should preface that by saying that. Pretty much all of the the venison that goes from places like where we're sitting now, this estate, goes either directly or via game dealers to the food chain in some some manner. Yeah, absolutely. Whether that be restaurants here
0: or on the continent, It's a large-scale food chain. What we are experimenting with here, probably is the right term, Uh, we're lucky that the estate here has a game dealer's license. So we can sell skinned game, um, you know, sort of initially processed game, as well as so skin off yeah skin off uh deer as well as deer in skin so normally you would sell your deer in skin to a game dealer who would skin it they would butcher it they would process it into perhaps sausages burgers uh charcuterie whatever and then they would sell that to sainsbury's or morrison's or you know the farm shop around the corner or a butcher or whoever who would then sell it onto the public um because we have that license here we are able um with some of our carcasses, we still use a game dealer. Uh, we have a really good local game dealer here who we use, and and um, they probably take the majority of our deer still. Um, but a few years ago, um, a lovely chap who probably is going to be heard from at some yeah, point,
1: hopefully we're going to record with um,
0: Lloyd Morse, uh, who's a he's a chef. He came stalking with me as a guest a few years ago to kind of see what it was all about.
1: Is that uh, how it started? I didn't. Yeah, realize. we kept
0: in touch. Um, from that, and Lloyd always wanted um, to buy whole venison carcasses. I was never in a position before I was here to sell them to him, uh, having never been on an estate with a, a game dealer's license or been given enough responsibility to make those sorts of decisions. Um, so when I came here, I uh, discussed with the estate owner, and we sort of had quite a long chat with Lloyd, and essentially came up with a, a, a bit of a system where we would sell whole seeker carcasses skinned and seeker as you say a kind of the connoisseur's choice of venison i think it, it's the venison eaters venison um although i'm told muntjac is excellent and i don't really know we haven't got any of those um but the seeker is it, it they are a very fatty deer which it's gets shed, Even the to the
1: untrained eye, it is very
0: obvious. Yeah. And I think to the untrained eye, people quite often would think it was lamb or, or something else. You can, you know, we can get a, a, a seacal haunch here that's got two inches of fat on the outside of it. It's still, you know, it's still venison. It doesn't marble through it. But you do have a, a, a much a higher percentage of fat than most of the species and again taste good it, it <laughs> is tasty and it's it's you know a lot of that is they're woodland deer they're out of that weather you know they've got good grazing here they're not particularly high pressured in that we haven't got you know um we don't have a huge footfall of access takers or yeah road or so they're not
1: or running anything. around all the time keeping no, out the way of people so. and dogs and no exactly
0: um so I think they're quite happy, stress-free during the most part. Um, which probably helps. But we you know, the the, the carcasses that we produce from the Seeker are are in, in my opinion, particularly good. Um and so Lloyd got very excited by this and to make it worthwhile uh got a, a couple of other restaurants involved uh that he knew chefs at or owners of or whatever. And so we've been sort of experimenting with taking uh a small delivery certainly by game dealer standards of carcasses uh down to different restaurants in Edinburgh who buy buy them whole they process them themselves as they like into joints and you know they they'll make sausages and burgers and different bits and bobs um as as they need to but yeah I mean you know they could cook the whole thing on a a spit it doesn't matter uh and what it means so cool that and I will speak (laughs) to
1: Lloyd a bit more about that tomorrow but I mean he can literally say if he is asked in a restaurant he can tell the people eating exactly where it came from and yeah. the fact that he's walked these hills.
0: Yeah, as you know, tomorrow Lloyd will come out stalking with us and he'll, he'll, um, he'll watch me, you know, hopefully if things line up properly, potentially shoot a deer or two. Um, he'll see that growlicking process. He'll see how we lard them. And Lloyd's been to the estate before and, you know, he's seen a bit of it, but um, he'll really he he has a, a fairly unique handle, I would suggest. And a lot of that is, is all power to Lloyd because he's also done that with, you know, the lady he buys his sheep from yep. um, and where he buys his chickens. So, you know, a lot of that is because he's taken those steps to, you know, put himself out there and make sure that he can have those opportunities. Um, I would never stop, you know, any of the guys that are buying venison from us would be more than happy to show them the same thing. I'm um, excited
1: to go to his restaurant and see see the final stage of it being presented to people in his restaurant, having seen the carcasses here in
0: the larder. Yeah, That's I think that would be, be lovely. I, I actually haven't been to a restaurant yet because it's in Edinburgh and I don't go there very often. So. <laughs> neither, neither do I, but I'm going to make a special trip. Um, I, yeah, and so will I at some point. Other than the airport. Um, and I'll I'll go and probably not eat any of the venison, ironically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but could
1: you eat all the time? Yeah. That's like 90% um, of the meat in my freezer is venison, so I probably would have <laughs> the lamb.
0: <laughs> um, but I think it's really nice. It's really nice for any number of reasons. It's nice from a stalker's point of view, in my opinion. Um, that there's somewhere you can really be proud of your carcasses going that you know it's not so where do your carcasses go oh they go to the game dealer black hole somewhere
1: someone eats them somewhere someone eats them
0: somewhere and like that's great um it's nice that here we are able to say well actually you know you can eat them in these restaurants yeah that's very cool which is cool um and it's nice that they're getting you know i even you know even in averted commas the seeker deer who we are you know shoot very hard we're not we're not managing for them we're managing and arguably you don't manage for any day you, you manage, um, you know, I remember someone telling me once that, you know, dairy farmers are, are really people that keep grass and happen to have cows on them. It's a bit like that. You're, you're managing, the landscape. you're managing an environment and an ecosystem that happens to profit certain species. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, the, the sea deer are not what we're managing for, but, we still have a great deal of care. We're still very bothered about doing it right. We want them to harvest them um, uh, humanely and as kindly as possible and as cleanly as possible. And we want to put the highest quality venison out from that. Um, And I think it's really nice to know that the people in that next step, because it's direct, you know, the estate here is invoicing the restaurant. There's no middleman. Um, We've got a really nice, uh, a small business down in Edinburgh called Root to Market who specialise in delivering produce. Um, And we, you know, they come up in a refrigerated van. We fill it with carcasses. We have a crack with them. Lovely delivery driver. Then zooms off down to Edinburgh and drops them off at the restaurants and they go and hang in, you know, Lloyd and his um, compatriots' um, cold rooms. I think that's great. I think it's really... um, it's really nice that, you know, so firstly the estate is um is making more money, which is always good. Yep. Um it, it makes the venison um side of, of the, the estate business um much, much, much more attractive than it is selling, especially after COVID and the big the big price drop we had. Um ironically because restaurants closed. Yeah. And so game dealers were, were left without much of an outlet for their, their carcasses. It just showed
1: so, you though that clearly it it is driven by the eating out market rather than the eating in market
0: absolutely that's yeah that that's needs to kind list.
1: of that needs to be addressed in the longer term
0: massively so and mm. there's been i know there's been those chats for quite a while with the is the scottish
1: venison partnership
0: yeah there's the scottish venison partnership and there is the scottish quality wild venison scottish wild quality yeah. the sqwa anyway um, the, the Scottish Quality Wild Venison Association, and they've been discover, di- discussing and trying to work out the best routes to market and the best marketing and the best ways of getting that into people's homes. I think the problem with venison is that it's daunting for people to cook. People yeah, are worried as sausage, about cooking it properly as a sausage, a
1: sausage, or a burger. I mean, or mince. Or, yeah, like, you but, know, I mean, those. Those are three different cuts, if you will, that
0: yeah. anybody can deal with. Absolutely. Um, and I think, uh, but I think the really interesting thing so is there's a great company. Um, I think it's a great company. They look like a great company called the Ethical Butcher. Have you mm-hmm. come across the Ethical yeah. Butcher? Yep. So the Ethical Butcher is a regenerative agriculture focused um, business that sells. Uh, what they consider to be ethically sourced meat online, and I'm saying they consider not in the condescending way that that sounds but just in a you know it's somebody else's business and I'm not involved in it yeah. so from what I've seen it's very ethical it's very good focuses on regenerative agriculture they sell venison um, but they sell park venison okay? because they can their anglers they are controlling what it's fed and that kind of thing so that it's not been fed anything for it or the environment i think that's the logic um and that's almost like the way their marketing is about that i i I actually read up on them after uh listening to an interview with the guy on a podcast about regenerative agriculture which i it's just something i find interesting um and uh and i read his like venison spiel and i was kind of like oh that really like that's kind of a bit mean to my venison you know that's that's (laughs) That's like very much like this is the best venison because it's in a park and it's controlled and it's proper, and you know everything like it's it's a very healthy and you know that's exactly what people are looking for when they're buying beef. They want someone that's you know controlling that in the name of the environment and, and this that and the other and I'm kind of like, well, but this is this cool thing that we don't need to farm like, yeah. this is naturally here, guys, mm-hmm. all right the Japanese seeker is supposed to be naturally in Japan, but you know we're definitely not putting drugs in them to make sure that they're growing. Quicker or anything like that, you know, this or is having way. to feed them, yeah. We, you know,
1: they have this, yeah, they <laughs> have this mountain, <laughs> yes, that exactly. goes from
0: here all the way north until you hit the sea, yeah, uh, you know, they and they do very well on it. And I think the seeker, you know, we have we have had restaurants uh, in Edinburgh buying reds, um however the i think once once those guys were seeing the fat content (laughs) they're like we want more of this it was like very much like yeah you can keep your red deer sound that's fine i was like okay
1: that's all red deer to the game dealer
0: uh yeah pretty much although to be fair i you know i don't know i think you can get a very good red hind and you can get a very good red stag in the early season yeah which which also has a great fat content and also is very tasty and not that testosterone gamey meat that people talk about um yeah, I I I don't know. I think the pickiness is sometimes. I feel like even Lloyd, like I reckon if I picked the right red deer and picked the average seeker deer, Lloyd would struggle to tell them apart in a blind taste test. That's possibly a very very bold claim that I would regret. That's something we but, might need to do at some yeah, point. Yeah. Um I think I think I think a lot of like the way things are, the time of year things are killed and uh, the the you know if you're a woodland red deer and a woodland seeker are are far more applicable than like, you know, if we went and shot a seeker hind in the wood tomorrow morning, we go and shoot a seeker hind in the wood. And then we go way out the hill and we shoot a seeker hind way out the hill. That's like been sat in the wind for the last month. Like who's going to have less fat on her? Yeah. The deer that's hidden behind a tree or the deer that's hidden behind its calf. So I don't know. (laughs) I think, I think red deer maybe get a bit of a hard rap because people get very wary about stags in the rut. And I understand that. Um, But the great thing is, is we're shooting a load of Seeker deer and there's a market for at least some of them. And that's fantastic. Um, And it's a small market, you know, we're not, and it's very much about, from our point of view, I think it's about making um, a little bit of money. It's about not losing money on Benison, actually. I think if it's... It's crazy that that's a situation If we broke even, then I'd be chuffed. And I'm not, you know, I'm not the accountant. I'm not entirely sure whether we're breaking even, but I can tell you that we're closer than we are selling stuff to the game dealer. Yeah, of course. um and the cost of running you know we we have almost definitely talked about this before on the podcast in a different um different angle in that in terms of people buying stalking days and the cost of that you know the cost of venison doesn't get close to covering the cost of harvesting it in most cases mm-hmm. um so if we can get a bit closer to covering those costs if we can get closer to um a, a sustainable food chain where i know that the miles being put on that carcass are from here to Edinburgh. Um, and then it's getting eaten and enjoyed. And, you know, someone like Lloyd or any of the chefs that we're dealing with, you know, they're great guys and they're excited about making their own stock from the bones that they are buying a whole carcass and they're using a whole carcass. Lloyd gets really excited about like slow roasting neck. Mm. And, and slow that's awesome because because so much venison that you see on menus in restaurants and pubs and things like that is like fillet of venison. Yeah, of course. It's is haunch venison. Like, it's what like, people understand. like a great deal of meat. It's what people understand. It's what's seen as those prime cuts. And therefore, it makes it exclusive. So, again, people at home don't cook it because, like, oh, well, I had this delicious fit of venison. It was perfectly rare. And it must be, you know, it must be a nightmare to make such lovely, fancy venison. Whereas, actually, if you went to Lloyd's and it's like, seek a, neck, seek a deer neck pie which is almost <laughs> yeah. definitely how he doesn't write it on the menu because I doubt that would sell very many. <laughs> tomorrow. But if he, you know, if, if he's, if he's, if you go into his restaurant and you have a really, really delicious meal and that meal is mince on toast, which he was telling me is is something he loves to cook.
1: I love a good mince or, on
0: toast. Um, you know, like I say, a neck in a stew or a pie. I also, like, it's great that all that is being used, which I think it it it's it's probably all used from a game dealer, but it's not gonna be used in the same way. You it's won't not know it's have the a neck. Dish. it'll be uh, exactly something it'll be in that burger. Yeah, or it's the sausage. not gonna be it's not gonna be celebrative for what it is. And I think that's a very like high and mighty thing to say about some meat in a lot of ways. But then we should be high and mighty like especially someone that produces it, you should be high and mighty about what you produce and you should be proud of it. So it makes me really happy that what we're producing here is, you know, it's not getting flown to Spain to get eaten by someone as, um, uh, you know, as as a chorizo or wherever they they use that as. Because I know that you know the continent's always been a massive market for Scottish renison. Um, it's not being used for that. It's not being, you know, blended down into Baxter's game broth with Christ knows what else. <laughs> it's very simply a carcass that's going to get used in its entirety in one little place. Um, and they're going to butcher it in that kitchen and then they're going to use those bones to make stock and that's going to be enjoyed by people. I think that's really nice. That's awesome. That's a cool feeling. Um, And it's, you know, I'd like to think it's something that can be used by other people and um, that, you know, we could maybe supply some more restaurants and I'd love to see more of our carcasses being used in that i'd like i'd love to be doing more local stuff as well Edinburgh's was a long way away and there's great restaurants closer yeah and is um, just on the road yep absolutely um and i'd like to think like i say we're very much experimenting at the moment it's a new thing we're trying to make it work uh and we're trying to make it viable in terms of our time and money and their time and their money um and i'd love to see you know i you think between here and Inverness, you've got uh, sorry between here and Edinburgh, you've got Inverness, you've got um, Aberdeen, Perth, you've got Aberdeen, kind of. If you do a bit of a detour, yeah. you know, you've got. There's Perth, no money left in Aberdeen <laughs> now that oil's died. Yeah, <laughs> you've got Perth, you've got Sterling, you've got lots of places, with lots yeah. of restaurants, and I'm sure lots of them serve venison. So, you know, let's work out how we're going to get that there, and uh, I think that's great. Um,
1: well, I am very much looking forward to getting out on the hill with you
0: both tomorrow. Yeah, it should be fun. Hopefully, it doesn't rain. Um, but yeah, it should be fun.
1: I mean, a little bit of rain's okay, but if it was pissing down all day, that'd be a little disappointing.
0: Yeah, very but, flat.
1: No, I, I can't wait to get my, my legs out on the hill, um, take some pictures, and uh, tomorrow have a chat with Lloyd and sort of hear the chef's side of it and hear some of his backstory, because I, be, I don't know a lot about him. I know no. a bit about his restaurant, I know what you've told me, um, but to hear this, the, the experience
0: from his side will yeah. be very cool. And he's much more interesting than me anyway, so that'll be, that'll be a doddle.
1: <laughs> well, Sam, thank you for coming back on the show. Don't worry. I think you've
0: you are the guest that's been on the
1: most No, after the show.
0: Yeah, that's that's sad for you. I think, I think <laughs> I don't know. that is, um, yeah, that is <laughs> that is that is an endorsement for me, but I feel sorry that you can't get some of your cooler guests on more often. Oh, they're, they're all, they're too, all just busy, too busy, <laughs> too busy being cool, Byron. Um, yeah, and we'll have to, um, we'll have to see. So, when are your so what's your next your like podcasting schedule? What have you got planned for the year? Do you have anything planned?
1: Well, Well, um, I'm going to try and be more... Not that I was undisciplined last year, but as I was explaining uh, in the kind of extended intro on the first show of 2022, uh, last year was just chaos for me. Mm. Uh, like being away, filming, writing, two volumes of Modern Huntsman. And it was just very hard to be consistent with the shows. Yeah. And to find the time to edit them and put them out, and also, um, and I said this a lot on the last show that I'd done it for a long time. And yeah, and you I did was, like one every two weeks for. Well, I was doing one a week yeah. in the first year of COVID. Yeah, just because I was like, I was sitting, I was in the states at the time, and like I was sitting in a city, and why not? Yeah, you know? and I had a podcast studio that I could use, so it was really yeah. easy. And it was fun, but I was just a little burnt out, and I didn't, I didn't want to ever get to the point, and I don't want to ever get to the point where I don't feel like the conversations that I'm having are the best that I can do, and uh, because then I can't get the best out of my guests, and then I don't think that's very fair to ask somebody to listen to something that I don't feel is the best. Do. Yeah, and so I'd rather not like take a break, and you know maybe not put somebody out. Which so there was a lot of gaps last year, um, but I'm sort of you know, I'm kind of looking ahead to 2022 and in a better place in terms of what I want to achieve this year and the kind of shows. And we've got some cool series like the Swarovski series, which is going to run for at least the first yeah, six I months. To so that's going on The day,
0: again. Jemima and I were driving around oh, Ascent yes. listening to ben. the American, yeah, the yes. American birdwatching man, whose yeah. name I can't remember, ben but I Liz thought it was a great podcast. Yeah. So
1: that, that's going to be out once a month, that kind Amazing. of format. And we've got Charles Poster here. I know yeah. You're rather fond of. And, some uh, another, like a whole heap of really cool guests that are going to be on that, and then this kind of show where we wow. talk shit. And- <laughs> for the people that
0: aren't cool enough to get any free sworsky gear. yeah. Yeah, we're
1: going to talk shit and have a long form. How do I ascend
0: to the lofty heights of the, the, the free Swarski podcast? Um, I imagine you get for going on it, you must get like some free no, stuff. No. I'm not as interested now. That's a
1: shame. Um, although I think. Uh, a lot of them are Swarovski ambassadors
0: who've been on. So a lot of them are actually yeah. are, are using their gear. So like qualified as well. Interesting, actually, saying that,
1: it? what you're—that's what you use anyway. I, I
0: am a Swarovski. You do. Yeah, you're a
1: your Swarovski rangefinder.
0: Not only am I a Swarovski fan, I'm a Swarovski snob when it comes to binoculars. Oh, you are. And actually, recently, I, um, I traded in my old Swarovski rangefinders for exactly the same model of source carriage riding binoculars why <laughs> just because they were like five years old and <laughs> <laughs> you just wanted the updated version I just know you probably I could just... have sent it back to them and they would have refurbed. I did that them. oh you did yeah just before I sold them um, I sent them back for a refurb but then I got a new pair because I feel like they are it's not even like you know people are like oh, it's like a joiner's hammer but it's not because the joiner like, doesn't have to use this hammer to use all his t- tools it's like a joiner's hand <laughs> like that is like what binoculars are. Well, yeah, it's it's just like a you know, it is a constant, and they have like a horrible life like what i would say is that uh, laughing as we were earlier about um binocular harnesses that is something i am such a fan of i recommend to everybody like get a binocular harness and try and like love your binoculars because otherwise they bounce around getting dragged through shit like mine live so if you think like mine presently are outside on the dashboard of the hilux and it's probably like tonight's not cold but like it could easily be minus 10 a night at this time of year. And then, you know, half six, seven o'clock tomorrow morning, i go and put the Hilux on power heat, crank the air conditioning up, <laughs> and spend like so 10 minutes getting well. it really hot. So yeah. they go from freezing cold to really hot. <laughs> they then get out and go back into the freezing cold like they, they fall off the dashboard because many I li- like many times they bounce off the indicator column <laughs> <laughs> and then they land, like hopefully they land on a part of my body and catch, but often they like, bounce off my elbow. You know, like they just have the shittest time. So I feel if you do what I do for a living, then like buying a pair of binoculars for life is not a good idea. Um, although, so before I have my fancy Swarovski rangefinders, I have a set, like my first pair of binoculars, are a set of Swarovski SLC mm-hmm. 7 yeah, by them, yeah. And mine are in that pale green color. I that love that color. They only made for like the 80s. Yeah. Um, my friend... Still has a pair of eight by thirty in that same colour, which I have wanted to buy from them for years because they're a beautiful little binocular. And I genuinely, if I didn't need a rangefinder, I would never have gone away from those SLCs. They are more comfortable to hold than the you see, this is why I'm never get, gonna get sponsored. They're, <laughs> they're like they're more comfortable to hold than anything else. And you never like I find the the, the rangefinders, and this is not a big problem because it's focusing them, but I focus them a lot. Mm-hmm. Like in the course of a day, I'll focus, I will look at things and focus the binoculars. Those old SLCs, I pick up and look at stuff and I don't need to focus them. I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's because I've got weird eyes. I've no idea. But that pair of binoculars, which are now 30 odd years old and got reserviced and like re nitrogen filled because they're a bit foggy and a bit knackered, yeah. um, they're still going. And, is, and those I won't smell. Like I'll swap my rangefinders, but I will not get rid of those because they're a great binocular.
1: It's an 830 that I have now.
0: Yeah, you yeah. see, I like for the hill. I would have eight by thirty twos or eight by thirties or whatever they yeah. are. The, yeah, these are the yeah, ones every I every time. For the hill. Yeah, yeah I, I would always ross have ross ross those. Ross. But I have the eight by forty twos. I don't like tens because they make my eyes sore.
1: I have a pair of ten forty twos, which were the first pair I ever bought. I was nineteen yeah. years old uh, when I bought them. They're a pair of, remember, uh, a pair of Carlos. Yeah, and I still have them. Yeah, but they make my eyes sore.
0: It's funny if, isn't I, it? if I have
1: to do a lot of scanning.
0: Yeah, whereas I like eights, and I always have. So I always have a telescope. So I always have like my gray, if I'm on the hill, I always have either a Grays or a rostroscope, scope, um, which is twenty something power or thirty power, like a lot of power. So power. I don't, yeah, I don't need, I don't need ten powers because I will look at stuff in detail with the telescope. And in the woods, like I always think if you could have six powers, then I would um but yeah i was always i always wanted i always wanted back in the day i always wanted a 7x50 Swarovski habich scope that you was, still see was, them every now and well, then no, was it a 7x50 they do they still you still see 8x50s They're no, quite I, th- common. I think they
1: did there was, was a they 7 x 50 there was a 7 something
0: yeah yeah but yeah the 8x50s you still see a lot of um and that's a great scope because 56mm like i wouldn't have another i have a 56mm objective lens on my Berman rifle but other than it's that, a lot I'm, of scope, though. Forty twos, yeah. like uh, my stalking rifle, my like estate stalking rifle's got a four to sixteen by forty four scope on it, hmm. and I just wouldn't have a bigger objective lens than that. Yeah. They're too big, they're too heavy, they get in the way.
1: I think fifty is the biggest I have.
0: Yeah, fifty's good. My um, one of my night forces is a fifty, and that's a nicer size. But my vermin rifle's got the big attacker on it, and hmm. that's a clunky. It weighs like one point three kilos. So <laughs> the, the scope. Yeah, the beast. Um, but anyway, this all goes, we're finishing up. And we were, were finishing up. Sorskis. Well, just
1: to, to finish up the, 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 the question that you asked me, I do have the, one of the really sort of exciting things other than the Swarovski series is that, and it's sitting on my desk, well, kind of on my desk right now, I'm, I'm working on it, is um, a really quite highly edited podcast series that might be three, possibly four episodes they were all recorded in Mozambique at Cotado Eleven during the cheetah relocation, and we in- I interviewed seven or eight different people, from biologists to Dan Cabela, uh, who's amazing. chairman of the um, Cabela Family Foundation. So Cabela, the big—I mean, it's now it's since been sold from that family, but most people will know the name, um, particularly in the U.S. And they're amazing as,
0: camouflage from the '80s.
1: Yeah, so when they they made some incredible products, you know, back in the day, particularly. Um, so there's this. Incredible spectrum of people that I'm interviewing, but I also have a a lot of field recordings while things were happening because one, I recorded audio almost the whole time, but two, I was also filming some behind the scenes stuff. So I've pulled the audio from that. So it's going to be, it's not just going to be, oh, here you're listening to Willem, the biologist. It's going to be an integrated podcast where you hear from multiple people and you, you, you hear what it was like for me to go out at one or two in the morning or whenever it was and go and dart a leopard out of the tree in the dark, having been bayed with dogs. And you're That's gonna be cool. in that environment. You're gonna hear the dogs baying, you're gonna hear the commotion of everybody and, and hopefully be feel like you're seeing it, but through audio. That's my ambition for this. So it's a lot of work to put a show together like that. Yeah. Um so there's probably gonna be maybe three episodes. But I'm I'm working on it right now and it's kind of exciting to be reliving some of that.
0: Yeah. Sounds a lot harder than being sitting sat sitting, whatever yeah. we're doing in my living room. Having a pint.
1: I mean, it's, a, it, it's more exciting to go and do. Because yes. it would be like, and I nearly thought about doing the, this tomorrow, but I'm, I'm busy taking pictures tomorrow, um, was recording some, like having you both mic'd up tomorrow and you're doing the stalking and pulling some of the conversations that you have, the, many not, of which could not, never be used. Not, not the heavy
0: breathing. <laughs> the heavy
1: breathing. <laughs> and integrating that into a show. But it is a lot of work to be able to do that. But I would like to be in a position, like we were able to, to do it um, because uh, a lot of the, the content that we've created, whether that be the stories in the new volume of Modern Huntsman yeah. um, around the Mozambique story have been funded by the Campbell Family Foundation. So we've had the ability to have a bit more time to be able to do that, to highly produce podcasts. podcast oh, yeah, that's series. That's really cool. To um, put the behind-the-scenes stuff together, to tell the stories, which is it's great to have the privilege of being able to do that, because it's the kind of stuff that I really do enjoy yeah. doing, but it does take more time.
0: And also, it's just it's a great... I think there's so much you know you can look at those things can't you and you can look at that that effort and that project and you can be like this is amazing they've you know and i don't know the details they've taken these cheetahs from here and they've put them there and that's great for cheetahs well done or leopards uh well
1: so they were they were relocating cheetah okay but we did collar a leopard
0: as okay well. um but you know they so you can look at that and be like yeah that's an amazing story and i think that's a that in itself is worth talking about and that's great i think it's so much more interesting especially for people like me that aren't necessarily a naturally scientific person like i'm quite ai don't know i'm I'm definitely not an artistic person but i'm not a scientific person i think numbers and things i I struggle with a bit so being having you like you say that behind the scenes like how it actually works like clicks with my brain so much more i'm I'm a practical person that's what i am neither an artist nor a scientist just a man with a spade (laughs) and for, for me that like <laughs> <laughs> who looks at brown things in brown, brown places, places great line <laughs> um yeah that uh that like things like that where you can kind of start to understand how you go about it like how that guy that does that for a living does that every day yeah. and how he like how he thinks about it in that daily way i think it's really cool well that's hopefully the insight you're gonna get well that will be exciting we're, we're, i might start with, listening with the to
1: audio it. <laughs> with the audio recording of actually you can't hear a hell of a lot in the, in the helicopters but i did have a mic in the headset so you can hear a little bit of the chatter. Oh, amazing. But I mean, just to paint a 15-second picture, well, the vet who's part of this operation is hanging out the side of a helicopter as we're chasing down a lion, running through the long grass, darting it in the ass. That's like, cool. That's what you're going to hear. That's cool. Once uh, once we put all that...
0: My, my, the thing I really want, just in case anybody does want to sponsor me... Um, <laughs> what do you want? F- a-
1: Dark I want gun. a net gun. A net gun for your trainees? Pff,
0: yeah, I don't know. I just, I saw one recently. I've never seen one in the flesh before. Uh, and I was at my Riflesmith and he, he's, he's got one. Um, okay. Yeah, he's got a net gun. I can't remember why, but it was for some like very logical net gunning thing rather than me who just wanted one. They're like 5,000 pounds. If I a 308 blank. Um, and I was huh. just like, yeah.
1: Oh, so there's quite a lot of oomph behind
0: that. Yeah, they go like 20 meters. Huh. So The Kiwi thing, you know, they catch stags and stuff. I was just like, that would be handy. It's like, you know, <laughs> he doesn't know like,
1: what for, but when well, well, my
0: tackle runs away, <laughs> <laughs> there is- you go, have a net gun. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, if someone wants to sponsor me, please be a net gun maker, that would be excellent. Okay, the call is out, sir. Yeah, absolutely. And, w- and, w-
1: and with that revelation, yeah. um, thank you very much for coming on the show again.
0: It is always a pleasure. Thank you for having me,
1: and uh, tomorrow. I think it is. I think it is still tomorrow, not today. I don't think we've been talking that long. It's no. Before twelve o'clock, it is tomorrow. When did we start? I don't know, but we have been talking for a while.
0: Ah well. But we tomorrow we are on the hill. Excellent. Look forward to it.